My name is Dario Hasenstab. I have two degrees in international affairs, and I'm here with Walter Hagritz, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we will analyze the coup in Niger through the lens of the Western bubble, because while Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. If you would like to know more about this concept, how this podcast started, or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. Now that it is August, we thought of mixing things up a little bit to bring you different vibes to the beach, mountains, or wherever you're listening to the summer episode. In the next four episodes, we will highlight some developments that show the bursting of the Western bubble. Boller, why are we doing this? What was our idea behind this? Hi, Dario. Well, for August, we wanted something a little bit different. And uh, given that most of our podcast series is about the desperate fight of the West trying to hang on to its bubble and being counterproductive in its foreign policy and in its behavior towards the rest of the world as a result, uh, we sometimes only talk about the Western bubble from the inside. But you actually notice, if you look around, that there are real cracks in the Western bubble and that the rest of the world is moving on from Western dominance. That's the world is no longer beholden to Western dynamics. That's the whole point of um, our narrative about the Western bubble, right? So it, we thought it might be useful to actually showcase a few of those examples where the Western bubble no longer is applied at the local level. And it would be very good for especially our Western audience to recognize that and to see how the rest of the world is moving on. And why are we speaking about uh, the coup in Niger then is, as an example of this? Well, for a number of reasons. First of all, uh, this is clearly a sign that the West no longer is in control of global affairs. This is supposed to be its colonial or neo-colonial uh, backyard, right? In terms of France and the United States after, the, after 9-11 and during the war on terror, dominating the Sahel region, which Niger is part of. Uh, the fact that the, these kinds of events are happening just like with Mali last year are a sign that the West has lost a lot of power and that's probably good news for uh, the rest of the world I would argue. Secondly what you notice is that there's still an attempt by allies of the West or at least countries that are relatively friendly to the Western narrative such as Senegal to take up a discourse on democracy on western values uh, even though you can clearly notice that it is uh, those local countries that are taking the lead and france and the united states kind of have to react those local countries still like to use the narrative that we have discussed with respect to the western bubble over and over again and um, thirdly and this is actually a point that you uh, mentioned before in our preparation and it's a very fair argument is that the West can be ranted about by opposition politicians. So you've got now uh, the, the leaders of the coup using a anti-Western narrative, a basically anti-colonial, anti-neo-colonial narrative. And a large part of this is because the West has never lived up to its past. So the West has never properly dealt with its colonial and neo-colonial tendencies. It's never had a clean break because it's never properly apologized. It's never properly said we have to do things differently. And the result is that there are still very strong and understandable anti-Western, anti-colonial 
sentiments among local populations in sub-Saharan Africa. And as a result, those are very useful politically by uh, people such as the leaders of this coup. But before we delve into our analysis on this topic, uh, let's first make sure that we're all uh, on the same page uh, when it comes to you know the informations uh, that we have. It's very important for us to mention that uh, we are recording this on Friday, the 4th of August, um, and that this um, episode will, will not be published until Wednesday. So there, in the next five days, there might be new developments. Uh, so please forgive us if we're not uh, taking those into, into account. Um, but generally, on uh, the 26th of July, a coup d'etat occurred in Niger, when the country's presidential guard detained the president, Mohamed uh, Bazoum, and the presidential guard commander, uh, General Tijani, um, proclaimed himself the leader of a new military junta. Uh, presidential guard forces closed the country's uh, borders, and they suspended uh, state institutions and declared a curfew. And as a response to this, the Economic Community of West African States, uh, ECOWAS, issued a seven-day ultimatum for the military to free the president and return the power to civil uh, leadership or civilian leadership. Um, the community uh, also implemented sanctions against Niger and even threatened to use uh, force if the demands are not met um, within the ultimatum. Uh, the military leadership uh, is not backing down um, as of well, the date of this recording, um, and the military coup leaders of Mali, Guinea, and Burkina Faso have expressed their support for uh, for the general and for the military junta. So it's a very interesting standoff. It's a very, I mean, as we mentioned before, uh, uh, kind of leading up to this episode, it's a very good case study of international relations. Um, very interesting. However, we are more interested in actually analyzing it from you know, the Western bubble perspective and, and what are the, the main aspects here. And I think the kind of the first um, thing to talk about here is how how little the West can do about this. Um, as, as you said, it's pretty much uh, the West kind of standing on the sidelines. Uh, you can see the French uh, evacuating uh, the citizens well, and, and Europeans. I think the United States uh, is... You know, is also floating around. I know from well because of, because of the German uh, background that the, the German government has has one thousand soldiers in Niger, uh, which they are currently pulling out of Mali uh, from the, the United Nations mission there after the military coup. Uh, but it's really the West kind of standing on the sidelines and saying and whacking their finger. You know, saying no, 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 um, that's not good. And that in itself is a fascinating observation that the West to be. Re- retreating from an area that used to be under their control at least geopolitically right i'm technically uh the countries became independent in the early 1960s nigerian actually in 1960 Uh, the sahel region became independent roughly at the same time from its colonial overlords, but since then, the French and since 9-11, the Americans have been very actively trying to control local dynamics. And the fact that this has completely failed by now, that that the West can no longer actually in any way even predict, let alone influence uh, these, these kinds of events, means a lot about where the world is in 2023. This was until recently unheard of um it's it's a good it's good news for the world it's good news for africa that the west can't control 
local dynamics anymore. I mean, we should celebrate that in itself, but it is geopolitically fascinating. And what's even more fascinating is that these dynamics aren't simply a geopolitical fight between the West and Russia and China or anything like that. Russia is happy to facilitate these kinds of events, of course. Um, Russia is certainly connected to a lot of these anti-Western movements within these countries, such as Mali and uh, such as Niger. But these are local politicians that now have found a space to actually go against this Western dominance. And that in itself is, is very interesting to observe and very important for the world. Um, I, I... That sounds a bit difficult, uh, you know, like to like it sounds a bit difficult to wrap your, your head around um, outside the Western bubble perspective. The fact that I mean, it's very important for the world that there is uh, now a fourth country uh, with, within the, the last few years that's now being being led by by a military military junta. Um, but it is like like that observation itself is very interesting. And then at the same time, it's interesting that the main player in this is ECOWAS. Uh, so the economic community of West uh, African states. Uh, I mean, I remember I heard about it the first time actually in your class um, as, a, as a positive example um, of uh, back in 2017 uh, when in the Gambia, you know, that little country inside of, of Senegal, um, when there, there were elections and uh, the long-term leader did not want to step down um, after he lost the elections. And then ECOWAS, mostly under the leadership of Senegal, actually came in and kind of told him, hey, if you don't do this, uh, it will be a problem. Um, so, so it's interesting to see that, you know, ECOWAS is the main player here, uh, despite, well, everything that's connected to that. Yes, I mean, and when you say the main player, the main foreign player, right? Because the main players in Niger, of course, the local is, is, the, is the, the, the coup versus the previous president. Uh, but uh, the ECOWAS is the main foreign player here. And to some extent, that already shows kind of the weakness of Western influence in the sense that they have to kind of do it through their still friendly nations, right? Any influence that they still want to exert. ECOWAS is an African organization under the umbrella of um, the African Union, led by Senegal and some others, and it is now the main foreign force that is trying to push back against this coup. The French would love to be able to do themselves, but they can't for a number of reasons. Uh, they, they simply don't have the power anymore. And secondly, it would be a horrible image, right? It would look terrible for Europeans to actively go against local dynamics. Now, one thing that I do want to point out, just to avoid any um, misinterpretations from listeners, I'm not taking a side in who, who is right and who is wrong in this conflict, right? I'm not celebrating a military coup itself. It's not, it's not my business. What, uh, what is generally good news, though, for the world is that the West no longer can control local dynamics. That is good news. Whether that means that all the local dynamics coming out of that are actually positive for local populations, no. And that's not up for us to decide. We're not experts on Niger. We're not uh, uh, part of the local population. So there is a distinction there, right? At, at a macro meta level, I'm just observing that it's good that the West no longer can mess as much with other countries that doesn't mean that these events are necessarily positive for local populations yeah and and then what is what is interesting um you know about 
ECOWAS intervening and especially under the leadership of Senegal is that this is still kind of, as you mentioned before, the back door for the West into it. You know, Senegal and France have very good relations with each other. And there's definitely, I mean, that sentiment of, well, these elected governments uh, in ECOWAS, the ones that have not been suspended yet over military coups, um, that they are very outspoken against this and upholding basically the democratic values and, and the legitimately elected governments, probably for very selfish reasons, um, you know, because they might be next. Uh, but that is interesting that that's still a little bit of the back door for France to at least try to exert some influence. It's it's a mutually beneficial relationship between Senegal and France, right? They And it's certainly not France dictating the terms of that relationship at the moment with respect to ECOWAS. But they they benefit from this cooperation and they benefit from promoting this democracy narrative, right? By they benefit from saying we are the forces of democracy that are trying to restore democratic values in Niger after such a horrible military coup. Whereas, let's face it, in reality, French presence in Niger and Senegalese presence or activity with respect to Niger has nothing to do with democracy. It's got to do with geopolitics. It's got to do with influence. Regardless of the inner makeup of France or Senegal, the, the, you know they can claim to be democratic, but their interest in Niger is not to have a free democratic population in the country. Their interest is geopolitical in the case of France, very specifically also natural resource related, uh, uranium related for their nuclear energy. Um, for Senegal, it's about regional control, regional influence through ECOWAS and and, 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 and through being sort of a leader um, of, of these kinds of affairs. So uh, the fact that they then hide it, they wrap it within a democratic uh, narrative it should be taken with a pinch of salt. But it's interesting to observe that they're still trying to hang on to that kind of discourse. See, this is one of the, uh, I don't know if I want to call it funniest, saddest uh, interactions I had with, with a friend uh, slash colleague in the past few days uh, about this topic, um, who kind of went down that route, right? Is the, of, oh, so this is only about natural resources. Um, and this is a, a conflict between uh, Europe, uh, France in particular, and Russia. And Putin is using the presence of the Wagner Group in this country to cut off France from... Uh, power supplies, well, so from uranium, which to which France uh, relies on of, of two thirds for, uh, well, uh, on on Niger, um, and this is one of Putin's plays, you know, to worsen the energy crisis in Europe uh, next winter when France uh, can no longer power its nuclear power plants. You know that that was that perspective, that very much self-absorbed. This is about the West versus the rest, and Niger is just a, a play ball in Putin's game. Um, those. Again, interesting, funny, sad, up to the listeners to decide. But that is one of the main messages. People need to get the memo that in 2023, the world is not controlled by a few capitals. And that's 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 fascinating in itself as an observation. I have no doubt that the Kremlin and Putin are happy to observe these dynamics. I mean, they were happy to see what happened with Mali. They were happy to be part of it, to... To, to support these anti-Western dynamics, they will be happy to see anti-Western dynamics in Niger and they will be supporting it. But this is not Vladimir Putin pressing a few buttons. These are complex local dynamics uh, 
that are now happening because the West is no longer controlling it. But the West no longer controlling local dynamics doesn't mean that all of a sudden Russia is the one who is in charge. No, it is countries themselves figuring out who they want to be and where they want to go. Sometimes in benefit of their local population, sometimes against their local populations. But this idea that international relations and foreign policy in 2023 is the playground of the three, four powerful uh, geopolitical entities in the world is simply no longer tenable. It is not how the world works nowadays. The world has become way more complex with dynamics that are not controlled by Moscow, nor by Washington, nor by Paris. And what is an interesting aspect of these local dynamics is uh, part of the rhetoric. Uh, so part of the rhetoric of the, of the generals of the military junta on why they basically uh, have taken power is the neo-colonial discourse, right? It's very much that anti-French sentiment, uh, trying to rid themselves of, of uh, French influence altogether. And um, I mean, we discussed uh, before this episode, would would this be possible now if the West 25 years ago had, had done a, a huge apology tour um, throughout the world, basically saying, sorry, we... We really messed up here with that colonialism situation. Uh, we apologize for this and we will, you know, now have an equal partnership with each other and no longer try to influence you in a neo-colonial way. Yes, especially that second part, right? Because, I mean, apology is nice and it's a good way to start the conversation. Uh, but in the end, it's about actual deeds and behavior. And what you see is that because 25 or 30 years ago, the time when it was possible after the collapse of the Soviet Union, um that Europe had time to reflect and also North America had time to reflect and they could look at their own behavior. They could have said, okay, we have to go through a difficult five, 10 year transition period where we carefully study all our behavior and see what is what are the remnants of our colonial past? What is neo-colonial still? And can we get rid of that in our foreign policy? And as a result, can we create a much more uh, productive, and a positive kind of relationship with the rest of the world, where the rest of the world, they won't forget about the colonial times, but at least understand that we are working hard to be different now. The West has never done that. They've never gone through that process. Once in a while it comes up like, oh, neocolonialism, and oh, that was bad, blah, 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 blah. But believe me, neocolonialism is still alive and well in a lot of foreign policy making, including, for example, development um, aid, and as a result, there is still a very fertile ground for politicians to use an anti-Western, anti-colonial discourse in sub-Saharan African countries, for example. Uh, still with genuine anger, genuine resentment for not just the past, not just everything that happened before 1960, but how the West has behaved over the past 50 years, since 1960. And that is something that is under-recognized by Western capitals. And it's one of the reasons why China has, for example, been so successful in Sub-Saharan Africa, because they weren't seen as neo-colonial. So they were a fresh force that could e easily be uh, accepted into economic dynamics within Sub-Saharan Africa because there was no political sensitivity there. And it is one of the reasons why now there is this very clear uh, anti-Western discourse happening in Mali, in Guinea, in Burkina Faso, and now in Niger. And what is interesting is that then the discourse 
by the opposing forces, the democracy discourse, is almost an appeal to neocolonialism, right? It's almost so when you're a leader and you appeal to democratic forces um, to come to your rescue, you're basically saying to the outsider, help me out. If you have a neocolonial discourse, an anti-colonial discourse, like the coup, the leaders of the coup right now, Chiani and others have in Niger, you're basically appealing to your local population. So it's a fight between the local population that still feels this anti-Western sentiment versus leaders that try to get help from the outside. Well, my money would be on the those who connect to local realities rather than who try to connect to Paris and Washington. And this is best summarized by a uh, an article from the BBC that was published uh, two days ago, so on the 2nd of August, um, and the title reads, Niger Coup, a litmus test for democracy in West Africa. And I think that this article is a great example of why we, we still need to continue uh, with this podcast, uh, because not everyone yet out there is seeing these obvious developments outside the Western bubble kind of bursting through it. Um, but here you have the, the author very much being focused on, you know, Nigeria's uh, concerns about democracy in West Africa and that this coup is a symbol of it. You know, it's all about democracy and it's not at all about strategic interests in a, well, realpolitik world. And, and local dynamics that are way more complex than simply democracy versus anti-democracy, right? It, this idea that, that we live in a linear world where you go from dark authoritarianism towards shining bright democracy, and the only question is where on that line are you, is of course an insane simplification of reality. There are loads of political dynamics, cultural interests, um, uh, sensitivities within any country, any given country, that influence these kinds of events. And yet we try to simplify it as democracy, we, I mean, sorry, we in the West, the BBC, Europeans, North Americans, simplify it into a simple fight of democracy versus non-democracy. And that is, first of all, terrible analysis, but it also then once again makes us reinforce our own little bubble and not see how the rest of the world is moving on from this kind of thing. It is a sign of indoctrination within the West that makes it almost impossible for media and politicians to actually connect to the realities on the ground, right? And that is not to say, once again, that we should be supporting General Chiani or we should you know, be supporting a military coup. That's not what this is about. It is about seeing the complexity of these situations rather than simplifying it into a good versus evil narrative. This is it with today's summer episode, which we will continue uh, throughout August. And in September, we'll start our third season. Please continue to send us requests for topics you'd like us to analyze then. We will also be grateful for your feedback to this format and questions that you can submit to thewesternbubble at gmail.com. Next week, we'll talk about a team, a press team's coverage on the Iraq war that gives us personally a little bit of hope about the media landscape out there.